Steve Palmer here with Lawyer Talk, introducing another series. Those uh, who have followed us regularly know that I've recently introduced the Q&A series that goes along with our normal podcast. We also do the Blitz. Now I'm going to introduce yet another series. It's going to be called The Legal Breakdown, Lawyer Talk Legal Breakdown. Now, what are we going to do in the Lawyer Talk Legal Breakdown? We're going to break down legal issues of the day or maybe even some legal issues of the past. Now, what do I mean by breakdown? I mean, make it simple. I mean, make it understandable. I, I, I think that all too often lawyers use big fancy words. They, they talk in uh, mumbo jumbo, lawyer speak, legal speak, whatever you're going to, whatever you want to call it. And I have made a career, at least tried to, uh, by avoiding that stuff and translating uh, what is really going on into plain language that everybody can understand. And I have this philosophy that uh, I like to make everything simple and almost everything can be made simple. Even the most complex of problems, once you understand them, you can break them down and make them simple. Uh, so that's what we're going to do here. We're going to take legal issues. We're going to take legal commentary that I'm seeing on um, on legacy mainstream media uh, or anywhere for that matter and explain it in real terms. I'm going to explain it with my backdrop of 26 years of, of criminal trial experience and just being in the legal profession. Uh, and I'm going to do my best to make sure that uh, we're I'm giving you the fair, honest assessment, but I'm also going to give you my opinion. I'm not going to hide that. So without further ado, Let's jump right into our first legal breakdown topic, Kyle Rittenhouse trial. Anybody who has followed this knows what's going on up there in Wisconsin. Uh, Kyle Rittenhouse uh, is accused of murder. He was a 17-year-old kid uh, involved in the rioting and looting or whatever you want to call it last summer and uh, went, uh, took his AR-15 out. And as he was uh, meandering around through the crowd after defending or going to defend one of his uh, friend's or uh, cohorts businesses uh, ended up in some a scenario where several people were shot. He shot several people. He claimed self-defense. The prosecutor is claiming murder. And now we have uh, a trial. And this I anticipate to be a big media debacle trial. I, I use the word debacle only a bit facetiously because uh, I think it's going to be covered uh, with a political bent on all sides. And uh, that's it's going to be interesting to watch. Now, from my perspective, I'm a criminal defense attorney. Uh, I love a good criminal trial. I love breaking down good criminal trials and explaining them to folks. And uh, that's what we're going to do as this thing goes on. Um, the bit of news that, that gave me the idea or the impetus for this uh, happened yesterday, I believe. And the, the judge was making some pretrial rulings. And this is pretty common in criminal cases or any cases for that matter. Um, the, the parties... Uh, the defense, the prosecutor, will go to the judge in advance of the trial and ask for uh, some guidance on rules of play. We call those motions in limine, which is um, fancy Latin talk for an early decision on what we can do and what we can't do. So we might have a motion in limine that says uh, the prosecutor shouldn't be allowed to introduce this evidence, this bullet into the trial, or they shouldn't be allowed to introduce this character assassination of my client, or the prosecutor may say, we anticipate the defense is going to call a certain witness, and we don't think that that witness ought to be able to testify. You're asking the judge to tell us in advance how that should go, what the rules will be, whether that witness can testify, whether the evidence can be admitted. Now, the reason we're doing this is because when we stand up in front of the jury, uh, say in voir dire, when we're picking the jury or in opening statement, when we first talk to the jury, we want to tell them what the evidence is going to show. And if we don't know for certain that a certain bit of evidence will come in to uh, the trial, then we don't want to talk about it. And we want to make sure that if the other side is about to talk about something that we're going to object to, then we want to get that 
set out right now. We want the rules set now that they can't talk about it, not even on opening statement. And that's what's going on in the Kyle Rittenhouse case. Uh, There was a request by the prosecutor uh, for an order out of the judge preventing the defense from using words uh, like rioters, looters, and arsonists to describe those who were either at the the protest or those who were shot. And they, they were suggesting or arguing to the court that these are pejorative terms, these have a negative connotation, and they shouldn't be used to describe the people who were shot. Now I'm using, if anybody has, has uh, caught on, I'm not using the word victim. And this is part and parcel with the, the headline news that we're, that we're seeing on this. Because at the same time, the judge has a longstanding order in his courtroom that prevents the prosecutor in criminal cases from using the term victim. Now this has a history. So I, I guess I should note that it's my understanding here that the, the judges, this is not a a new decision out of the judge only in the Rittenhouse case. In other words, the judge didn't say for the first time in Kyle Rittenhouse's case that the prosecutor cannot use the term victim to describe those who were shot by Kyle Rittenhouse. Uh, The judge has an order uh, standing in his courtroom, apparently, that just says, you can't do it. Now, there's some history here. I've defended criminal cases for years and it often it, it, there's it, we almost take for granted that the prosecutors get up and say, well, the victim here was 20 years old or 15 years old or was an old man or an old lady. And they, they use the word victim, victim, victim. And there is some psychology about that that uh, that has some negative connotations and can arguably contaminate the jury's viewpoint of the case. In other words, if you start out calling somebody a victim before you prove it, it's got a very, very uh, negative connotation to it, and it can it can contaminate the trial. So the prosecutor's saying, well, I mean, sauce for the goose is sauce for the gander here. If I can't use the word victim, they can't call uh, these people rioters, looters, or arsonists. Uh, there's, those terms are just as loaded as the, as the word victim. And the judge says, no, 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 I don't agree. Uh, I, I don't agree with that. Now, you can imagine, and let's stop there for a second. You can imagine the headlines. I mean, on the, on the political side of it, uh, I, I see this one guy is writing. I, forgive me if I sound contemptuous to this because this isn't fair. Uh, you know, the, the, he can use the defense can use these words: rioters, looters, uh, arsonists. But we can't call them victims. How fair is that? Uh, and they're making it sound like uh, like it's something that is uh, grossly unjust. Um, and you know, I get it. It, it does look like that. But I want to comment on a few things and uh, and shed some light on the bigger picture here. My understanding of the court order is that if there is evidence that establishes that these folks were rioters, looters, or arsonists, um, then on closing argument, the defense can argue, use those terms and argue it if they've established it or the evidence shows it. Um, and that's a little bit different than than uh, what the news is portraying. Um, now, the, the longstanding victim rule, uh, I actually am, am I'm in favor of that because I you know, that, that's a rule that applies across the board. And in this case, the judge is saying it's no different. I'm not treating this case any differently. Um, but if the evidence shows that these other people or, or these, uh, the deceased were rioters, looters, et cetera, then let them argue it on close to, at their peril. Because if they don't show that, well, then maybe it's not going to be uh, so beneficial for them. So I think the judge is trying to take somewhat of a neutral approach to this. Like if the evidence shows it, then, you know, you know argue it. That, that's something you can argue. Uh, now, th- there's also some more detail that should be discussed here is that 
in order to act in self-defense, which is the defense, uh, you have to act, uh, you have to respond to what is happening to you. I can't shoot somebody uh, and call and cry self-defense if I don't feel like I am in danger, if I don't feel like I have uh, a reason to do it, and if I don't do it, I will be killed myself or, ser- or I will suffer serious bodily harm. And what the defendant perceives there reasonably and objectively as well as subjectively in his own head as well as how everybody else uh, around it might perceive it also is very important and you know in that context it is it is sort of a substantive or a, a critical component of the case what the people around him are doing and specifically what the victims are doing and I'll use the word victim there just for fun uh, so if the people who were shot are are acting, irrationally are rioting are uh, are committing serious crimes well that may be relevant for the claim of self-defense itself and you know all the time we have to be mindful of something it is not always sauce for the goose is sauce for the gander when it comes to criminal defense here's the thing criminal defendants have constitutional rights and you i've heard it both ways well all these defendants they get so many rights these days you know they might as well just go commit crimes with impunity um i'm here to tell you if you've been charged with a crime and you didn't commit it, or say it's like this, it's self-defense and that's your claim, it sure as heck doesn't feel like it at the time that you have any real constitutional rights. They are very limited. You have a right to remain silent. Uh, anything you say can and will be used against you. Everybody knows that uh, standard verbiage. Uh, and, and at the initial stages, that's about it. You have a right to a lawyer once formal adversarial proceedings have started. That's, again, lawyer fancy talk to say once charges are filed, and uh, you're going to be accused of a crime, you have a right to a lawyer, and they can appoint one for you if you can't afford it. Um, And then you get to a trial. There are certain trial rights that criminal defendants have, and I'm sorry to say this, actually, I'm not so sorry to say this, the the government doesn't have the same rights, and there's a reason for that um, that we'll get to. We, on the defense side, have a right to remain silent at trial. They can't force us to take the witness stand. They can't force us... Uh, to, to climb on up there and tell the jury what we did and subject ourselves to questioning. We have a right to have an attorney represent us at that trial. We have a right at that trial to be presumed innocent. And that presumption can only be overcome by evidence presented by the prosecutor beyond a reasonable doubt uh, to the satisfaction of each and every juror. That's Again, I'll break this down. It's all fancy talk for saying we are presumed innocent. We start not guilty. And until they offer evidence that convinces everyone, the jury, all of them, all 12 here in Ohio, beyond a reasonable doubt, that the prosecutor has proven their case, then that presumption stays intact and the defendant cannot be found guilty. We enjoy that right, all of us as citizens, when we go into a courtroom. We have the right of confrontation, the Sixth Amendment. These are Most of these are Sixth Amendment rights, by the way. But we have this right of confrontation. What's that mean? Uh, Matlock, Perry Mason, whatever the the legal show of the day is, or the criminal defense show of the day, your lawyer gets to stand up and question and cross-examine the government witnesses. And I call it a matlock uh, because if you get the one of the witnesses to confess uh, to the crime instead of your client, then uh, you've matlocked them. But the idea is we get to confront and our accusers. We get to say, I want to challenge what they're saying. This is an adversarial clashing of ideas. And, and the notion that uh, truth can only be had if this is permitted, still rings true in our system, and most other systems are letting that go at an alarming rate. So I get to get up and question the government witnesses. 
Now, the corollary to that is the right to compulsory process. Now, that's, again, fancy talk for saying I get to subpoena witnesses to come in in my own case. I can I can slap subpoenas on witnesses and have them show up to court. And in theory, uh, if they don't show up, I can use the strong arm of the court system or the government to go drag them into court if they've been validly served with a lawful subpoena. And I, I tell clients all the time, look, we can subpoena folks to come in. I can't make them say what we want, but we can at least get them to court. Now, beyond that, we get to subpoena uh, Dukas Takem. Fancy talk. We'll break it down. It means please bring with you, bring documents with you, bring, uh, bring your diary, bring these records, bring whatever we want with you into court. And that means that I can subpoena, say, a government witness, a police officer, and, and bring with you the recording of this conversation. Bring with you your, your police report on this particular incident. And in, in certain cases, it becomes quite powerful to subpoena folks to come into court and, and use that power uh, of the right of compulsory process. Now, the, the, these are individually uh, important rights, but we sort of look at them together as a right to present a defense, a right to go into court and defend ourselves. And this all started, this discussion here today started with this notion that we, the defense, have constitutional rights that the government doesn't have. They don't have the same rights. We get to do things by constitutional right that the government doesn't always get to do. And fair or not, that's just how it is. Now, how do we justify that? Well, because they have all the power. And anybody who thinks that it's the same, uh, all you have to do is just go experience the criminal justice system on the defense side just for a short period of time. You're going to realize that when you need an expert, you have to pay for it or beg the court for funds to pay for it. When you need somebody to investigate something, you have to pay for it or beg the court for funds to pay for it. And I'm here to tell you, it's not always easy to get the money. Now, on the government side, say it's a federal case, they have the FBI, they have the ATF, Homeland Security, uh, Drug Enforcement Agency. They have uh, really endless resources to go track down what the United States attorney needs to make their case. And this is, it is not fair. It is very lopsided, even with the constitutional rights. Now, what does all this have to do with the Rittenhouse case? Well, here's the thing. Rittenhouse has a right to present a defense. He has a right to present self-defense, even if we don't agree with that, even if you're on the other side and say, this is all crap, no way he acted in self-defense. Well, he has the constitutional right to go into court and present it and uh, in, in offer evidence in support of it. And if he goes into court and proves that he was afraid of these people because they were rioters, because they were looters, because they were arsonists, and because they were attacking him on top of all of that, that is part and parcel to his fundamental constitutional right to present a defense. And we may not like the seemingly uh, inconsistent ruling out of the judge, but it's really not an inconsistent ruling because at the end of the day, at the end of the day, the defense still has to prove these things before they can make that argument. And uh, it, it is also true that so many times, defense attorneys overreach. They will go into court and start slinging around these pejorative terms um, without the evidence to prove it. And that can backfire, in fact, does backfire more often than it's helpful. So uh, don't discount the the ability of the jury to get to the bottom of this on their own. Um, now, as far as the term victim goes, there's lots and lots and lots of commentary on this. Just Google it. But the idea is you don't want to contaminate early on a jury's notion that this is a victim. And, you know, if you, it's sort of like subliminal messaging. If, if the government, the court, and all those involved start uh, using the term victim 
at the outset, it sort of presents a presumption that there is a victim there. And that is the same as saying somebody is guilty. So if somebody is a victim, that means they've been a victim of a crime. Now, if somebody is an alleged victim, as the judge in Rittenhouse said, that's just a kissing cousin here to the word victim. So, look, I sort of got to respect the judge for that decision and his his ongoing policy in his courtroom because, you know, here in Ohio in death penalty cases and other cases, I've often asked the, asked the court for an order requesting the prosecutor to refrain from using the term victim, and we don't get a whole lot of play out of that here in Ohio. Uh, but we try. And in, in our way of dealing with it, uh, if I don't get the order, is to stand up and call them on it. I mean, I'll stand in front of the jury and say, look, you're going to hear in this case the word victim. And it sort of bugs me. It bugs me because it, it, it presumes something uh, almost like a, like a sneaky little presumption that, the, that my guy's already guilty, that they're already saying that this person's a victim and giving them that moniker is a dangerous moniker. And then on voir dire, I'll ask the jurors to give me their thoughts on it. And sometimes I can unravel it that way. I think the best defense to things like that is to call it out in the open exactly what's going on. And, you know, I've said for particularly in the last several years and with the politically charged climate here, uh, this is a criminal courtroom is sort of like the last bastion of, of open adversarial clashing. And to the extent that folks want to limit rights, that they want to limit the process, do so at your own peril. Because I, I, I've written a couple blogs on uh, that are thinly veiled commentaries on on political stuff. But uh, you, one of the one of the ones I'm kicking around is you do not want your criminal defense lawyer to be woke. You don't want a woke criminal defense lawyer because you want your criminal defense lawyer to be able to defend you, uh, however they need to. And don't hold back uh, just because you're 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 worried about uh, some some perception. I think jurors have a an innate ability to cut through the nonsense. And if if you're using terms that are pejorative, it's going to backfire if you can't back it up. If uh, you're trying to avoid a certain defense tactic that would otherwise work because you're worried about offending the woke crowd, you're compromising the adversarial nature of the process. And, and again, uh, the clashing of these ideas, the, the adversarial fight in a courtroom is how we get to the bottom of things, is how we get to the truth. And anybody who thinks that government witnesses don't lie and they always tell the truth, well, they're mistaken. Anybody who thinks that the defense is always, uh, 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 there's always an overreach against the defense, well, you're mistaken too. It's somewhere in the middle. And the only way to find the middle is through the natural clashing of ideas in the courtroom on a playing field built on the fundamental constitutional protections that are so important to the system. So, uh, the legal breakdown for the day, what's the takeaway? All right, this ruling, it, there's an easy way to make it sound unfair or biased or otherwise uh, you know, foolish or uh, inconsistent. That's not what's going on here. The judge has a longstanding ruling that, that, that doesn't permit the term victim, and that's for good reason based on lots and lots and lots of uh, criminal cases and experience in that courtroom. In this particular case, there are terms like arsonists or uh, rioters, et cetera, that may or may not come up. And the judge is saying, all right, well, I'm not going to create a blanket rule that you can't use those terms, but uh, you got to have evidence and you got to establish it first, and uh, then you can. Uh, and if, if you try to go out front 
and use those terms and then don't establish it, well, that's going to hurt your case. Uh, so I, I don't think anything is inconsistent about this. I think what this judge is trying to do is to make sure that he gives Rittenhouse a fair trial. And that, at the bottom of everything, is the goal. I don't care where you stand politically. I don't care how unpopular the cause. I don't care how unpopular the defendant. He has to have a fair trial because next time it is you or the ones you love and what was taken away in the Rittenhouse case will not be given back in the case that you care about. So as we watch the Rittenhouse case unfold, as we listen to these awful pejorative arsonist rioters, looters terms, Stay tuned for more Lawyer Talk legal breakdown on this and plenty of other topics. And remember, this does not need to be a one-sided Steve Palmer alone discussion. If you have questions, if you have comments, check us out, lawyertalkpodcast.com. You want uh, a legal concept uh, to be broken down or part of the legal breakdown series, just send me a note. You got a legal question you want me to answer on the Q&A series, send me a note, lawyertalkpodcast.com. And as always, you can look us up at the law firm, ohiolegaldefense.com. That's Yavich and Palmer. If you need legal representation for any criminal matter or anything else for that matter, give us a shout, 614-224-6142. In fact, just put the number in your phone right now, and that way you have it on speed dial when you're needed or when it's needed. So for now, we're going to wrap up the first legal breakdown, Lawyer Talk Legal Breakdown. And as always, we are off the record, but on the air at least until now.